Our series, The Time in Between, is all about life right now as we wait for Christ's return. And while we'd, we'd like it to be easy, the reality is quite the opposite. Jesus promised it would be so, that just as he was hated by this world, so would his people, so would we. And that includes by the secular powers of this world. We enjoy many protections in this country, but the Bible reveals that secular authorities will often oppose Christians, target Christians, and seek to silence Christians. So what does that mean for us? How do we react to that? Well, we explore all that and more coming up. Now, on Ascension on Air, the time in between, God will save his steadfast people. For the modern state of Israel, the world has changed a lot since October 7th. And that was the day when Hamas militants streamed in from Gaza, taking lives and hostages in an unexpectedly powerful and planned attack. More than likely, we've all heard about it, seen it on the news, read about it. The people at the music festival, the children and the elderly, the loss of lives, especially civilian lives. In fact, that appears to have been the point, to indiscriminately accomplish the greatest number of casualties possible. And so setting aside everything else we could say about this situation, from the history of conflict in that region to the political implications of of all this, this much is clear. Those people were targeted. Average Joe Israeli was and is the focus of this deadly force called Hamas. And living under that kind of focused opposition can't help but bring about a very real and a very enduring sense of vulnerability and ultimately fear. To be targeted like that, to be targeted by a dangerous, deadly opponent, that naturally brings fear. Now, most, if not all of us, can't relate to that level of of fear and uncertainty and vulnerability because we don't live in a war zone. We can try to imagine it and we might give thanks that that our lives are safer and more secure as we as we recognize that that's true because in many ways that level of deadly opposition is foreign to our day-to-day experience. But the the truth is, the reality is that scripture reveals is that might not always be the case, especially for believers in Jesus. And there's there's ample proof of this, the opposition that God's people face. There's ample proof of that throughout Scripture, including the life of Daniel. Just last week at Ascension, we talked about how the Babylonian Empire, the, the, the big uh, area, regional power of its day, um, conquered Judah. This was in the 6th century BC. Uh, the, the southern kingdom of the Old Testament, Israel, was named Judah. And, and Babylon came in and conquered Judah and took its people into captivity. And certainly, God's people who lived through that experience would have felt targeted by that deadly and opposing force. And, and they would have continually, I'm certain, felt targeted as they lived in Babylon, opposed for being foreigners in a foreign land. And that actually is what you see playing out in in Daniel's life, in Daniel chapter 6, which we're looking at today. By this time in Daniel's life, he had risen prominently in Babylon, despite being a foreigner. 
because he was he was living under God's blessing. Uh, he, Daniel was serving as one of three administrators under a king named Darius, and Darius was very pleased with Daniel, so much so that he was about to promote Daniel over the whole kingdom. And this irked several of the other high-ranking officials who looked down on Daniel for being a foreigner from this conquered nation of Judah. And so they conspired against Daniel. They convinced King Darius to issue a decree requiring that all prayer for 30 days would be offered to Darius alone. And they did this because they knew that this would work against Daniel. They knew Daniel was a faithful, faithful worshiper of the Lord, and this would cause a problem. This would force Daniel to make a choice between obeying this law and being faithful to his Lord. And they wanted to trap Daniel in order to get rid of Daniel. And that's that's exactly what happened. So these officials find Daniel, Daniel, as we'd expect, praying to God. They report it back to Darius, and he has no choice but to throw Daniel to the lions, quite literally. Only in, in a spectacular turn of events, God sends an angel to save Daniel from the lions, and the plot of these envious officials backfires on them entirely. It's one of those times in Scripture where you're, where you're like, yeah, God, that's awesome. Those people tried to hurt Daniel, God intervenes, and Daniel comes out on top. Cool stuff. But as cool as it is, as interesting as that account is, those events really aren't only about Daniel or his life and what he experienced a long time ago. Daniel's story is really an example of something broader. It's, a, it's an example and an occurrence of a much more pervasive targeting of God's people, a more sinister opposition that continues also through to today. And to see that, it helps us to zoom out a little bit. So uh, you might remember a, a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if you were at Ascension last week, you would have heard about them, Daniel's three friends from Judah. Those three friends from Judah, also faithful believers in God, they had their own amazing story. The king at that time, uh, that that uh, is part of that, that story, was Nebuchadnezzar, a different king from Darius. Um, same kind of kingdom, but different king. King Nebuchadnezzar uh, sets up this golden idol. And he says that everybody in the kingdom must worship it on pain of death by fiery furnace. And of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse. And, and so they're subsequently thrown into the furnace. Only they aren't harmed at all because God sends an angel to save them. It's, a, it's really a very similar experience to Daniel because of, well, one, because of that angel who saves. There's an, there's an angel or a supernatural saving that happens. But it's also similar for this reason. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted God's people to worship what he said, this idol made of gold on pain of death. King Darius, or more properly, King Darius's officials, wanted prayer and required prayer to be offered to Darius alone instead of God. They were different objectives, narrowly speaking, but they're both examples of the same thing. The power of the government being used to coerce God's people. In other words, Daniel in the lion's den isn't merely about a personal vendetta by these officials who were green with envy over his success. It's also about the power of the state to oppose God's believers. 
In fact, that very theme shows up throughout Daniel and throughout Scripture. Now, for the next several minutes, we're going we're gonna to go on a little trip here, and it's going to get a little weird because of some of the, the, uh, the, the symbolism we're going to be talking about. But hang in there. It, it all comes together in the end. We're going we're gonna to look at uh, Daniel 7 and, and Revelation 13, hang in there, and we'll bring it to a nice tidy bow at the end. So in addition to history, the book of Daniel is also highly prophetic. So it not only talks about the history of God's people at that time, it also has a lot of prophecy in it in the in the form of visions. And that's what happens in the very next chapter of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. In that chapter, Daniel has a vision of these four frightening beasts. And the first one looks like a lion, the second a bear, the third a leopard, and the fourth, which is the most terrifying of them all, is unlike any animal. And of course, Daniel wonders what this means. And it's revealed to him that each of those beasts represents an earthly empire in the coming years. And this is, again, this is in Daniel's time, so 5th, 6th century BC. Now, there's some additional descriptions of those beasts that we're skipping over for time here, and they help us to identify those kingdoms in history, actually. But suffice it to say, the prophecy in, in Daniel 7 very much appears to be talking about four major kingdoms that would dominate this part of the world in the years before Christ's birth. One, the Babylonian kingdom of, of Nebuchadnezzar. Second, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, which took over after that. That's King Darius. Three, the Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great and his successors. And then finally, the Roman Empire of Jesus' day. In fact, the descriptions, and, and this is kind of an aside, but the descriptions are so clear when you look back on history that, that some Bible critics look at Daniel and say it must have been written much more uh, clo closer to Jesus' day uh, because this, this author, whoever he is, must be looking back on actual history and making up prophecies about it instead of actually prophesying what's going to happen because it's so accurate. But of course, that's not true. These visions are given to Daniel for a reason. And the reason is to communicate to Daniel and his people that the future would not be like the glory days of the past, of the kingdom of Israel under David, when David ruled uh, in, with the strength of, of the Lord and he had a, a glorious kingdom. Rather, in the coming years, the ungodly powers of this world, world powers like Babylon and the Persian Empire, they would rise and they would fall. And all the while, God's people would seemingly be insignificant and even oppressed amidst all these world powers vying for, for control. And the point for us is that this continues today. The last book of the Bible. So we, we, we're, we're getting really close through our little trip here where we've gone through Revelation 7. Now we got, excuse me, Daniel 7. We're jumping to Revelation chapter uh, 13. Because Revelation, like Daniel, uses a lot of images and visions to describe the time in which we live now. Daniel was describing the 500 years after kind of Daniel's life before Jesus, uh, before Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Revelation talks about right now, this time in between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his return on the last day. And in fact, Revelation chapter 13 sounds a whole lot like Daniel 7. 
only it describes one beast, not four, one beast, but this beast has characteristics of all four from Daniel. And in that chapter, as it speaks about this present day in which we live now, this time in between, we read these words. The beast was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. In other words, the ruling powers of this world throughout this New Testament time in which we live, they've set their sights on God's people. We are targeted. We are opposed. We are the object of oppression and the destruction of this world. Now, just last week at Ascension, we made the point that governmental authority is established by God, and therefore it's worthy of our respect. And it's true. It's true. But like any good gift of God, Satan can and does use the great power of government for his own purposes to oppose the people of God, the church of Christ. This is something that the Bible makes clear is very real and will continue until Christ comes again. That's what Martin Luther experienced, too. And perhaps most famously in the city of Worms, there, the powers of his day, the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, he was the political power, together with the papacy, the religious power, the religious authority, these powers demanded Luther to answer for what he had been teaching and preaching. They demanded that Luther reject and recant the true gospel of free forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. They demanded Luther to submit to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which had masked and veiled the gospel. And they demanded this with that looming threat in the background of death, the looming threat of being burned by the, at the stake if, if refused. Just as Nebuchadnezzar demanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to forsake God and worship an idol on pain of death. Just as the government demanded Daniel to give up prayer to the true God on pain of death. Just as it remains in our day. We have so much to be thankful for here in America, with the protections we have. Our right to testify and witness to the true God, Jesus Christ, is so normal to us today that these accounts of secular powers targeting God's people, at times they can seem like a whole other world. But as we, as we pause look about us carefully, open our eyes to what's around us, we begin to see the truth. Here in the U.S., we do experience varying degrees of the power of the government against us, the power of the government to force adherence to ideology that conflicts with Christian witness. If you look outside of America, there are many Christians who are in much worse Situations who are endure, enduring ongoing severe opposition for faith in Jesus, risking their livelihoods, risking even their lives. And so as we, as we consider Daniel today, easy prey for the ravenous lions as he was, and, and we see his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as, as they were bound, intended to be burned. And we see Martin Luther face to face with the ruling powers of his day. And we hear these words from Revelation. 
that secular authorities will wage war on the people of God and even conquer them? Maybe we we hear all this and we think about all this and we cannot help but be struck with fear at the prospect. Very real fear and vulnerability. Perhaps we wonder, well, what if that's me then? What, what if it's my faith that will be severely pressed? What if the secular powers of this world seek to silence my witness? What if it's my livelihood? Or worse, my life on the line? What if I or my children learn firsthand why Scripture calls these earthly powers beasts, terrible beasts? What if we experience personally their power to conquer God's own, to conquer us? The truth is, these aren't just hypothetical questions. Such opposition is real, and it will continue throughout this time in between. But God reveals this to us not for the purpose of frightening us, not to fill us with fear and leave our knees shaking, but to empower us, to empower our faithful gospel witness as we hold on to this truth, this truth that's even greater than any of that, this truth that the sovereign Lord, the God who rules all nations, will save his steadfast people. That is what Daniel's life shows us. Daniel's opponents, these other government officials, they had thought things through. They laid a trap that they knew would be effective against Daniel because Daniel was going to be faithful to the Lord. Even Darius the king afterward could do nothing to save Daniel from being torn apart by the lions. But that didn't stop God. Against all odds, in a no-win situation, God saved with an angel, closing the mouths of the beasts. Or look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar's men who bound them and brought them to the brink of the furnace. Those men died themselves from the extreme heat of the fire, and they weren't even put into it. There was nothing any human could do to save Daniel's friends from that furnace, but that didn't stop God. Against all odds, in a no-win situation, God saved with an angel, rendering harmless that destructive fire because the sovereign Lord saves his faithful people. But what about when God doesn't? What about when God doesn't send an angel to save? Well, consider Martin Luther. At Worms, Luther stood his ground. When he faced the combined power of emperor and pope, Luther refused to recant. He took his stand on the gospel, but there was no powerful angel army visibly appearing that day to defend him. There was no supernatural rescue from the threats against Luther's life. And yet that didn't stop God. Against all odds, in a no-win situation, God saved. <laughs> this time it was through a human being through a man named Frederick, the elector of Saxony, who hid Luther away in a castle, safe from the power of emperor and pope. Because the sovereign Lord saves and will save his steadfast people. But what about when it doesn't look like there's any saving going on? What about when God doesn't send an angel? 
What about when God doesn't work through other people? What about when it all does seem truly lost? God's people losing their livelihoods, losing their lives, seemingly helpless before the power of this world set against them. What then? Well then, friends, remember the rest of Daniel's vision and the bigger picture that God showed him. That is, please remember that there is another kingdom in Daniel, one that is established and never passes away. And there's another ruler in Daniel against whom the beasts have no power. This is how Daniel described it. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You know that kingdom, friends. And you know that king. He is your Lord Jesus. You see, the message of Daniel isn't one of fear for God's people at the hands of the kingdoms of this earth. It's a message of victory, the victory of God's people through the one who has established his kingdom and made us members of it. Think about this. Neither Babylon, nor Persia, nor Greece, nor Rome could stand in the way of the Son of God in his life, death, and resurrection, establishing the kingdom of God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's rescue. No power of this world could stand in the way of God bringing you into that kingdom through the gospel, in the Spirit's washing and baptism. And so also no kingdom of this world can stand against the Son of God, the Son of Man and his commitment to finally and forever save his own, to save us. That's why Daniel's vision closes as it does with these words that are among my favorite. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. Remain steadfast, friends. Hold to the pure, true gospel. Remember Daniel. Remember his friends. Remember Luther. Remember whose kingdom wins in the end. Witness. Confess. Don't give up. Because the sovereign Lord will save his steadfast people. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Ascension. If you'd like to talk with Pastor Ben or just learn more about our ministry, check out our website at ascensionharrisburg.com.